Why don't you stand with me as we as we read the word and the passage that we're going to be studying this morning. It's out of Hebrews 13, 7 through 16, and I think it'll be on the screen. Otherwise, take out your Bible and follow along. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Good morning, everyone. So today we are finishing our series through Hebrews, and I hope you will agree that it's been a really great few weeks looking at this amazing book. Uh, so thank you to Pastor Paul for allowing me to contribute in a small way. Um, and next week we begin our, our Christmas series. So one of the best things I did growing up was be a part of the Boy Scouts. Was anyone a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout growing up? I loved being a Scout. And we would do um, all sorts of things. We'd go camping and hiking and fishing and archery and rock climbing and all sorts of fun things that, that young boys love to do. And the chief scout in the UK was Bear Grylls. Now, as you can imagine, for me, of you know, a t young teenage boy, Bear Grylls was my boyhood hero. And I thought he was just the coolest guy ever. And I would love watching him you know, scramble up these big rock faces and, and take on all these challenges of nature and then find these disgusting things that he could tell you were edible and he eat them himself. And I would kind of dream of going on these big adventures with him and he'd you know, take us across these uh, vast wilderness areas and we'd try and escape the, uh, escape the environment. To my boyish imagination, he was the man and I would have followed him anywhere and I thought he was a, a great leader and someone to aspire to. Uh, only later when you know, I grew up and some of those reports came out that some of those things that he did might have been more staged and a bit more um, you know, produced than we realized did my estimation of him go down slightly. But I think uh, we all need leaders and role models in our lives. And we see them uh, all over in our, in our life, don't we? They're defining roles for us. And especially in our early teenage years, we need leaders to look up to. We need people to look up to and to be inspired by. And the same people can fail us, and they can fall short of our expectations. 
But in the church, God has designed us to be, uh, to function in a way that we need leaders. We need leaders in our church and faithful servants who have responded to the Lord's call in their life to uh, give up working ordinary jobs and instead commit themselves to serving the body of Christ. And these men and women have been given a unique role within the church, and we should do our best to uphold these people and to respect them and and support them, as the passage is describing today. And that doesn't mean that we will always have the leaders that you want them to be, and they'll always be free of mistakes, of course. They too can let us down, but they are leading from a different power source from the way that the world leads, aren't they? God empowers his leaders to work through the Holy Spirit inside of them as they seek to emulate and to serve Jesus Christ. That's the, the, the power, that's the, the, the way that they lead. So as we'll see in our passage today, there is a, an exhortation to remember and to honor our leaders. And uh, that is all set behind the main thrust of the argument that we can do this and we can respect our leaders because of our great leader, because of Jesus He is our great leader, and he perfectly guides us like a shepherd would his sheep, keeping us safe from danger. And when our focus and our attention is on Christ, he is able to keep us from these distractions and and novelties and strange new ideas that try to reinvent what we know to be true about Jesus and his church. And it was Jesus that became our blood-stained scapegoat for us and reconciled us back to the Father and caused us to take up our own cross and to follow him to go outside the camp alongside with him, safe in the knowledge that we are resting on a certain hope that he has provided for us. The hope is the hope of a glorious new city, a new city that Jesus will reign over as king forever. A few weeks ago, we, we looked at the centrality of the church, didn't we, in God's mission for this world and the importance of participating in the church and being a, a member of a local body. And the final chapter of Hebrews again reminds us of this vitality of the central part of the church that plays in the Christian life. And God's church is to be committed to its leader, namely Christ, the husband of the church, but by also the faithful service of its leaders who endeavor to keep it from false and deceptive doctrines and teachings as we all together head for this eternal city in glory. So would you pray with me? And then we'll open our Bibles and start. Well, Lord, we thank you for uh, what you've shown us, what you've reminded us and taught us uh, through looking at your word in in the book of Hebrews. We thank you for the way it magnifies Christ and the way it shows us that he is our our greatest need and he has promised us so much and delivered us so much. And we we look again at this final chapter and recognize that we, we have this wonderful church that you have given us, that you sustain and promise to uphold and you will uh, preserve And we thank you for its leaders. We thank you those that have given up uh, many things to sacrifice themselves to the service of others and to love those uh, with selfless love. So we pray your word will be made plain today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along with me. So beginning in verse 7. The last chapter of Hebrews almost kind of reads like a great summarizing chapter uh, to conclude all that the author had said in, in the previous 12 chapters. And if it, if it was a sermon, like we've kind of suggested a couple times, it could have been, it's almost as if he, he finished his message and then he realized, oh, wait, I've got a few more things to, to cram in there last minute because he tells us um, 
after he's finished his big, you know, big exhortation, he tells us to uh, be hospitable, to care for those in need, to honor and preserve godly marriages, to resist greed and jealousy. And then in this final section, before he closes his, with his closing greetings, he tells the readers to remember and uphold and imitate their leaders that God has placed you under in his church. And then he will bolster this by commanding uh, our attention to be put on Jesus. And he is our great and perfect leader to whom we owe obedience and sacrifice. So let's think for a moment about leadership. Why do we need leaders in the church? Now, historically, the the church has always um, interpreted this differently and come up with different solutions of uh, how leaders are to function in the church. Some have taken very radical views, like the Quakers, and they don't have leaders at all. And their their meetings are just all together, and anyone is able to participate or or to say something in their meetings. Others, like Baptists, have a more kind of congregational, um, democratic model that allows people to vote for their leaders. Other denominations, like Presbyterians and Anglicans, have a more hierarchical form of leadership. And the Catholic priests are, are held in higher regard still. Now, regardless of how we interpret what it means to be a leader or how we interpret what the biblical uh, model is for church leadership and structure, we all seem to agree that God has specifically set aside and called certain people to give up their regular jobs and lifestyle and devote themselves to the service of the church. Now, Hebrews is telling us to remember and to honor these leaders because they they should by their words and their lifestyle be worthy of imitation. We see both uh, good and bad leadership, don't we, through our lives. I wonder if sometimes we we rely on leaders uh, a lot because sometimes deep down we we kind of still feel like children, don't we? Sometimes we want the leaders to be the ones that take responsibility and to uh, lead the community and we just follow along. Now I have have two young boys and my three-year-old boy loves to talk. He is an exceptional talker. And with that comes questions, like so many questions. And he, he wants to figure out and ask questions of how things work and who this is and what this is. And always asking questions. And to the point that he, he's at the age that he'll start asking questions about strangers that you're walking through the grocery store next to and you know, talking too loudly and you're trying to quickly shut him up. <laughs> but do you know, he never, he never asked me questions like, will we have enough money this week, Dad? Or... <laughs> Will we have enough food this week? Or what does my future look like? There's kind of a simple innocent trust, is there, with, with young children. That they, know what, that, that, that they know their parents have what's best for them and will do all they can to provide for them. And sometimes we still want that trust and dependency on our leaders to be fulfilled when we confide in them. We want the leaders in our lives to live up to the standards that we put on them sometimes. And we often see this fail in the world, don't we? We see... Politicians and business leaders and coaches and doctors and parents and friends fail us, but the church is different. Godly leadership should be marked by humble service and ministering with a, with a care for the needs of the flock and not for themselves. And that's not to say that God's leaders aren't capable of messing up, but rather that their capacity and their perspective that they have to serve people comes through a care and commitment to first following the Lord Jesus Christ and, and leading for the benefit of the people, not for themselves. I went to see a new film about Napoleon this week. Do anyone go to see it? Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, he was the French military general, and he was the emperor of France in the 19th century. 
After the French Revolution, he successfully conquered France and much of, much of Europe for a short period of time. And he was a, a mastermind at the art of war. He had the ability to, to read a map with such precision that he knew exactly where to send troops and what to do to, to conquer the enemy. And he would break his army down and send uh, the infantry and the cavalry and the artillery in smaller units that could be autonomous. And they would outmaneuver and then strike the enemy uh, where they weren't expecting it. But one of the many reasons why he was so successful was he was loved and adored by his men. He would make his men feel recognized and appreciated. And he was known to, to walk throughout the camps and to, to talk to these people, to eat with them, to remember their names, and to treat them just like real people. And he therefore earned the respect and was able to convince these men of carrying out the, the boldest and the bravest operations and with the most courage that they have in battle. And he was a flawed man. He had a pretty uh, rocky and volatile love life, and he wasn't a great uh, man with social interactions, but his men held him in the highest regard because of the level of investment that he showed them. I think we all need people to aspire to, don't we? We all need uh, leaders and people to be our inspiration. And it's amazing how God can uh, take his people and push them to do great things for the kingdom of God when he has placed excellent and, and faithful and godly leaders in front of them to carry out that vision and to be the, the champion for what God is trying to do in a place. God has given us leaders and people that have accepted this call to live a life of service to the good of God's people. God has chosen these leaders with, with precision. He knows what he's doing. He knows where his servants can be best placed to effectively minister to his people. And I think that's why we're to have one pastor and, and be part of one church and not to try seeking our, our pastoral leadership from other sources, whether they be uh, online or different, different places. So the author of Hebrews is saying, remember these people that God has entrusted of you. Encourage them and show them the appropriate respect when their demonstration of their faith is commendable and worthy of imitating. The author tells us to look at those, and he uses that as an argument for how we can do that by following Jesus. Jesus is our great leader. He perfectly guides us like a shepherd would his sheep, keeping them safe from danger. God's covenant people have always been successfully led by people of great faith. We looked in Hebrews 11, didn't we? of all those great men of faith and women of faith that um, follow Christ, even if they didn't know him. And these current leaders that we have deserve the same honor, to be proved uh, you know, godly ministers of Christ. Now, one of the primary tasks of our leaders, as the verse goes on to say in the church, is to bring to us the word of God, as it says in verse 7. This is not something we need to do or take in lightly. Uh, getting this preaching of scripture right requires more than just someone who is you know, a confident public speaker or someone that has a great personality. Our pastors are essentially becoming God's mouthpiece every time they proclaim the Lord's word and prophetically declaring its truths and its promises and its encouragements and its warnings. And James tells us that not many people, therefore, should be teachers because they are judged more strongly than others. There is a certain standard to which our leaders have been entrusted with God's word when they are called to it. And when that is carried out with godly humility, then we are presented, aren't we, with a model to follow, to imitate. 
And we too can draw upon God's word and to, to follow them and allow it to transform us and then be in a better position to communicate God's word to other people. The next verse, in verse 8, seems to kind of take an abrupt turn, doesn't it, when it talks about Jesus being the same yesterday, today, and forever. But this, I think, is the central idea of the whole chapter, the, the immutability or the unchangeableness of Christ. Because Jesus has never changed and will never change, we can remain certain of his gospel and submit to his lordship over us. Now, the psalmist tells us that of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens and the works of your hands. They will perish, but you endure. They will all wear out like a garment. You change like the raiment and they pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Jesus has been perfectly leading and governing everything from the beginning of creation and will continue to do so into the eternity future. He has proven perfectly that he is dependable in everything he does and everything that he promises to us. And he was present and active from the very start in creation as the divine Logos, and he is today now present currently offering us salvation and the glorious invitation that he has given us that we shouldn't escape or neglect, as the author of Hebrews is saying, and then he will forever be reigning as king in this new kingdom that he came to inaugurate. Now, why did the re readers need to be reminded of this, and why is it such good news for us today to know that Jesus doesn't change? The proclamation of the gospel by the apostles was not long ago, and what was initially started you know, from the church starting at the day of Pentecost has now passed. But the messages and the events it produced, it may be in the past, but Jesus, the same Jesus, is alive today, and his gospel and its power has not changed. The gospel is not old news. It's not lost its contagious spark of glory. The gospel has not run out of steam. It does not need to be revived at all. And what great news that is, is that Jesus doesn't change. Just about everything else in this world changes, doesn't it? Every uh, culture, relationship, situation, institution, government never remains the same. And that's good sometimes because there are flaws in those things and they need to be addressed and changed. And even the church itself changes, doesn't it, on the surface? It takes different forms throughout history in different places. But Jesus does not change. Perfection does not need to be changed. He's so perfectly completed his work in his part of creating the universe and saving it after sin destroyed it, and in promising to return as the king reigning over all things, that he made perfect again. And it is this Jesus that we choose to commit our lives to. It is this Jesus that we continue to believe that what he said about himself and the claims that he made really were true and that they really will come to pass. He delivered what he said he would do perfectly. Let's look at verse 9, it says. With this in mind, the author goes on to say, do not be led astray by false teachings. One of the reasons we need faithful leaders, of course, is because uh, they are being entrusted with the word of God and they are to carefully and accurately handle God's word for us. And we constantly need this uh, checking and submitting to God's word if we are to keep ourselves from going astray with these strange teachings, as it says. Now, in this case, uh, the original readers of Hebrews, the issue seems to be revolving around uh, eating certain foods. Perhaps these were foods that have been offered to gods, uh, but the warning is still relevant for us today. When we have uh, 
a whole host of strange and new doctrines and teachings and ideas that are always trying to, uh, to bend and to slant and manipulate or just unbalance the truth of God's word. And this has happened so many times throughout the history of the church. We think of some bizarre examples. Did you know there were snake handlers in churches in the south uh, across Tennessee and the Appalachian Mountains? They would practice snake handling and pick up venomous snakes and allow them to be bitten by them. And they, they, they did this as a spiritual ritual, believing that they wouldn't be affected by the, the snake's bite because they took a, a very literal interpretation of Mark 16, 17 to 20. Then there's far more widespread and, and, and perhaps deadly misrepresentations of God's word, like the, uh, the Mormon church, for example. They reject the Trinity, and they don't recognize the deity of Christ that we do. They advocated for polygamy at one time, and they have uh, the belief in pre-mortal lives in heaven before they come to earth, baptism for the dead, and a whole host of strange things. Now, despite the many errors that we can fall into, God has always preserved his church, even when sometimes that's just a, a small uh, core remnant from lapsing into error. Now, when we stay connected to the source, that is, when we stay connected to Jesus himself and remain within the, the, the kind of mainstream of the church, which God has faithfully sustained, that's kind of the surefire way of not to be taken apart by these obscure teachings. The new and, and the novel and unique ideas that we come across in theology should often be avoided. They usually don't have much value to give us. The church does not need to redefine its beliefs according to fit more appropriately with every passing generation or every cultural moment. We should be about the old, unchanging truths of God's word. And the reformers knew this. And when they were you know, doing their work, they considered themselves to be reformers, not to be innovators, because they saw themselves as, as taking on the, the truths of old and reformulating them to, to, to bring to light a hidden part of the gospel and have it proclaimed more clearly. But the world is loud, isn't it? The world is loud and diverse and messy, and we hear the ideas and teachings of people every day. We hear that you need to live like this to be happy, or you need to eat this way to be healthy, or you need to think this way about this issue. You need to believe this to be a, a really true Christian. And so the opinions go on and on and on. Um, but what if there was such a thing as a definitive, objective truth? And what if Jesus claimed to be that truth himself? And the church is seeking to understand and to represent that truth in Jesus. There is a clearly defined way that leads to life. And though it may be narrow and may few take it, there is genuine wisdom to be drawn from the incarnation of truth himself, Jesus. Jesus made the starting claim, didn't he, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The heart of every person needs good, pure, life-giving truth. We can only go on deceiving ourselves for so long. And Jesus is the same. He has not changed and will never change. Therefore, any teaching about him should be not seeking to innovate who Jesus was or understanding of him, but rather illuminate more clearly how Jesus has already revealed himself to us. Now, moving on to verses 10 to 12. Here is where the author draws back uh, onto the central and most important message of the whole book, the truth that it was Jesus that came to rescue us by his blood and give us a new and living hope. 
the author is saying this gospel is still gloriously true, even if the original apostles had died off and it has been passed down to the current leaders that your church have. Forget about chasing these, these strange new doctrines and these, these things that are novel and fleeting and maybe satisfying temporary desires and curiosities. Instead, now we live for a higher purpose and remain following our great leader and savior. So let's look at how the author you know, lays that out for us. He first brings our attention doesn't he, to uh, the old ways. Before Jesus, they had animals that had to be brought to the temple and sacrificed. And their blood was accepted as an atonement for sin. And it temporarily restored their relationship back to God. The animal was brought inside the camp and removed um, away from God's holy presence. And the life of the animal, God declared to be in the blood. So the blood was separated from the carcass of the animal. And just, just think about if you were to do that, what a, a messy and kind of visceral experience that would have been to know that you have sinned and it cost you the life of one of your valued animals, and you go and effectively waste it and kill it to restore you back to God again. The overwhelming you know, sight and even the stench of, of all this animal flesh being sacrificed and bled on the altar must have never you know, allowed you to forget the way in which you have defiled and separated yourself from God. But Jesus made a new way. Jesus completed and fulfilled that system once and for all, and his blood was shed and body laid to waste outside the city. His blood gave us life, and the body of his did not remain lifeless, did it? It did not stay dead, but three days later it was raised a glorious resurrected body and secured for us that great salvation that did away with any other attempt that we might make to return ourselves to God. He was our scapegoat, the one who took on innocently all the filth and evil of the world and cleanses it pure again. His blood did not stain us, but cleansed us. Just like when the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years went to touch Jesus, she was unclean and terrified to touch Jesus and make someone else unclean. But what does she find? She touches him and she is made clean by Jesus. Jesus took on that impurity and restored her as clean and pure. And we have the privilege of regularly rehearsing this wonderful exchange every time we take communion, I think. Some of the commentators looking at this passage think that's an allusion to communion. Whereas the Jews didn't eat the meat that came from the tabernacle and was laid on their altar, we now have a better altar, it says, where we can partake in remembering the body of Jesus and his blood shed when we take the bread and wine every time. Now looking at verse 13, we can too go outside the camp with Christ and receive the same reproach that he did. We can count the cost of following our Lord and taking up our cross daily. And we can do this because we have been given a new and living hope in the coming kingdom. We do not live for this world. Those in Christ are new creations and we are essentially now foreigners in our own countries, waiting to be brought home with Jesus. We take on new values and new understandings and new ways of, of living, new commitments to love and serve those that are radically different from the way of the world and all that we do within this community called the church. The church, therefore, is, is functioning as a, an eschatological community. It's anticipating the closing of all of human history. It is a gathering of people by the Lord from every tribe and tongue and nation seeking to, to devote themselves to worship until all that is restored and we will be brought to glory with Christ. We have no lasting city here. We are to hold on to everything that we have now lightly. 
C.T. Studd, who was a Victorian English missionary to Africa, said, One life, and it will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. We are a people with certain hope, a hope that we may not fully realize or articulate, and we may not be able to comprehend exactly how this will work and how all of human history will, will close. But we are a hopeful people that he will take history and transform it for his glory. And we have faith that he would do that. We have faith that we have been grafted into this new family and he has given us a right to now participate in this new, everlasting and perfect kingdom. And this kingdom, this, this idea of heaven, isn't just kind of pie in the sky. It isn't just this popular, distorted view of heaven where everything is, is wonderful and we're able to live this, this perfect life and do anything we want to do. Instead, we seek the city that is to come. And every time we meet together, even as we meet in church, we are participating in this grand story of redemption that God has laid out across all of human history that has a trajectory that one day will be realized. The conclusion of uh, John Bunyan's classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it, uh, captures a wonderful description of what this city is going to look like when we finally reach it. For those that haven't read the book, uh, it's about a man named Christian, and he becomes a Christ follower, and he goes on this uh, adventurous journey across different places and takes on different dangers and perils until finally he make, makes it to the celestial city. He makes it to heaven where he will meet the Lord Jesus. And the final chapter ends as the angels tell the man Christian, you are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall be given white robes, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower regions upon the earth, to wit and sorrow and sickness and affliction and death. And then Christian asked, what must we do in the holy place? And they replied, you must wear a crown of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One. For there you shall see him as he is. There you shall serve him continually with praise, with shouting and thanksgiving. And that leads nicely on to our, our final two verses, 15 and 16. Since we do have this living hope of an eternity spent with Christ, spent with him in the presence of God, we are to come and bring a sacrifice of praise to God. No longer do we need to bring animals and to bring you know, costly animal sacrifices, but instead we bring a sacrifice of praise, don't we? And this is a costly, uh, deliberate ascribing to him of our worship. In our praising and in our prayers of adoration, there is a, a recognition, there is a, a reorganizing in ourselves to make us realize that he is God and we are not. That he is perfectly holy and deserving of glory and we do not that he rules the world with truth and grace. And it changes us. When you bring that to him, that, that offering of praise, it turns our attention away from ourself and it magnifies the creator God who deserves all of our affection and sacrifice. So as we conclude this morning and wrap up our sermon series in Hebrews, I think we do well just to once again center our focus upon Jesus. All that came before him in the history of God's people was a, a foreshadowing. It was a limited model of what was to come. We have this great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews 11 said, that came before Jesus and now after him to show us that we are not the first generation to trust in God. We are not the first people to, to believe that he is true and he is faithful. 
We are not starting anew, but we rest on the firm foundation that God has proved himself perfect over again and again. And the evidence of this, the ultimate demonstration of this, is through the life and ministry and death and resurrection of his beloved son, Jesus. Now we have been grafted into this family, haven't we, that we call the church. A family that God is creating, and it's a family that God has seen to place leaders over for our good and his glory as they serve faithfully and minister towards us and witness to the enduring goodness of God that they see. So we can now stand firm in the certain faith in Jesus. We aren't hoping blindly that things will work out for us. Instead, Christ gives us a concrete hope for the fulfillment of all his promises. And this is worthy of our praise and our lives and our affections. Amen.